If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I was reading uh, a couple of accounts uh, this week about some things, and I, uh, I was struck by the similarity between them, although they do not on the surface seem to be similar at all. One is uh, a, a great uh, Hindu festival that is held every 12 years in India at the confluence of four uh, rivers. And millions, literally millions of people come to this uh, festival. Uh, and there's some bizarre things that, that go on. A, a group of holy men lead the pilgrims down into the water. Uh, they are stark naked. Uh, a, a common sight is to see worshipers cutting their tongues with long knives. So they are in eternal silence as uh, an offering to their gods. Uh, they uh, have shaving booths uh, all around and people shave all of the hair off of their bodies including their their eyebrows and they throw the the uh, uh, hair into the filthy water and for every hair that's thrown in you are promised a million years in heaven uh, this festival is designed uh, to have you do certain things that will make an atonement for sin and we, most of us, think of that and we're either shocked or amused or we think, my goodness, how could people believe things like that? How could they, uh, how could they come up with something like that? The other incident that I, I saw was uh, someone sent me uh, a, a tweet that uh, was from a uh, so-called pastor. Uh, he was a homosexual man somewhere, and he said that he, uh, uh, his, I guess the sin that he is most uh, against today is racism, which racism is certainly a sin, there's no doubt about that. But he said that Jesus was a racist, but he repented of it. And he talked about uh, the account in Matthew chapter 15 of Jesus talking to the Syrophoenician woman and called her a dog. But the woman spoke truth to power. And when she did, Jesus repented. And when he repented, he got right with God. And that's what all of us need to do. Now, you do understand that's as goofy as the Hindu festival, do you not? If Jesus Christ has sinned, he cannot be a savior. If Jesus Christ is a racist, then all of us are without salvation. I am convinced, after living as long as I have, that at heart, all men, and that includes me, all men are, are legalists. We, we want to devise a system that will allow us to please God. And so we build all of these ladders that will take us to heaven. For some, it is doing things. It's being woke. It's being an activist. It's, it's working hard. For others, it's not doing things. The little ditty that I have given you 
hundreds of times over the years. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. But all of us build these ladders, if you will, uh, that will enable us to climb up into heaven. The natural man instinctively believes that somehow he can make himself right with God by his own effort. That if we just do enough things, or if we don't do a few things, then we will somehow make it. The Apostle Paul knew that that was the mentality of humanity. And so, continuing his assault against works righteousness, establishing that, that Abraham, who was the supreme example of a godly man, was saved by faith rather than works, Paul now establishes that Abraham was saved through God's grace. We already looked last week at the fact that Abraham was not saved by his circumcision because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness 14 years before the covenant seal was applied to his life. So now Paul is going to say not only was he not, not justified by being circumcised, but he was not justified by keeping the law either. Now, Paul's argument is if Abraham, indeed the greatest man of the Old Testament, is saved by grace through faith, that is the way that everyone is saved. That we all come to God in the same way. If Abraham could not be justified by the ritual of circumcision, then he could not be justified by keeping the law, then no one else can either. We cannot be justified by the ritual of baptism. Baptism is important. I said last week, I believe it is essential to your sanctification because it is the first step of obedience that a believer takes to be baptized, to identify oneself publicly with Jesus Christ and with his church. But baptism doesn't justify you. Baptism is a sign that you have been justified, that you belong to God. And you cannot be justified by keeping the law. The reason is you can't keep the law. We, we fail to understand in our efforts to do something, to be justified, just what is required. Often at funerals, I say to people, do you know what it takes to get into heaven? It takes absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. No one's going to heaven unless they have absolute perfection. Unless there is an absolute, complete, total righteousness. Any of you got that? I don't. I don't. So how are we going to get to heaven? By believing that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us what we could not. That he came to earth and kept the law of God. And then died in our place. And when we believe on him... God imputes his absolute perfection to our account. 
and imputes all of our sin to Christ. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the way of salvation. That, that, and, I, and I know sometimes you, you think, you know something, Brother Bob, all your sermons sound the same. Yeah, they do, really. Because that's the message. That's the gospel. That's, that's what I have to give you. That's what the Apostle Paul gives us. Paul's first point had been that Abraham could not be justified by the right of circumcision. Now his second point in this fourth chapter is that he was not, Abraham was not justified by keeping the Mosaic law. And again, the chronology of Scripture proves his point. The law came along 500 years after Abraham. Abraham didn't have the law. There, there, there was no law for Abraham. It was revealed to Moses centuries after Abraham lived. Man has never been able to come to God by the means of an outward ceremony or any standard of conduct. When Abraham was declared right with God, he was neither circumcised nor was he in possession of the Mosaic law. Circumcision had not yet been required by God and the law had not yet been revealed by God. Therefore the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law but rather through the righteousness of faith. The promise to Abraham was embodied in God's covenant with Abraham in which the patriarch was told that his descendants would be the heirs of the world. So if you look at God's promise to Abraham there are four things that emerge. The first one involved a land. A land. A land that Abraham <laughs> would live in but not possess. You realize that the promised land that Abraham went to, he owned one piece of ground the whole time he lived in it. A cave where he buried Sarah and where he eventually is buried. The cave of Machpelah. It's five centuries later before Joshua leads the children of Israel uh, in their conquest of Canaan. Secondly, the promise of God involved a people, a people who God said would be so numerous that they couldn't be numbered. They'd be like the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the, on the seashore. And eventually Abraham would become the father of many nations. And so he is. Paul has already talked about the fact that both Jews and Gentiles, which is everybody on the earth, who believe in Jesus Christ become the descendants of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. Why? Because we were born an ethnic Jew? No, because we have believed. The true descendants of Abraham, the New Testament argues, are spiritual, not physical, spiritual. And thirdly, the promise involved a blessing. A blessing would come 
to the entire world through the descendant of Abraham. And the promise is fulfilled, fourthly, in the giving of a Redeemer. A Redeemer who would be a descendant of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed and have the provision of salvation. And that promise to Abraham, we're told, as we looked a couple of weeks ago in the book of Galatians, constituted the preaching of the gospel to him. And Abraham believed that gospel. And even when Isaac, the sole promised, divinely promised heir, was about to be offered as a sacrifice, Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead because he believed God. He was convinced that what God had told him about a descendant was true. Jesus told the unbelieving Jewish uh, religious leaders, in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, who would be born, one of his promised descendants. And through that descended Messiah, the Christ, Abraham would bless the entire world. Referring to Genesis twenty two seventeen and 18, Paul here gives God's uh, exposition of his own word. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his offering to many, but to one, to your offspring, that is Christ. I said before, I think it's interesting that, that Paul is so confident in the Word of God that he puts this whole thing upon, you know, a, a, a singular noun rather than a plural noun. He said God didn't say to seeds or to descendants or offsprings, but to a seed, a descendant, an offspring, one. There was one who is a promised Messiah. There is one to whom the blessing of God will come to the whole world. And later in the same chapter, the apostle says of all believers, Gentile as well as Jew, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It is in Christ that we become a part of that spiritual seed. It is in Christ that we become a part of the family of God. All believers are one in Jesus Christ. We are one spirit with Him. Because they are identified with God's only begotten Son, believers themselves become the children of God. It is not human descent from Abraham, but spiritual descent from Him. Paul, Paul is going to say later that you have to remember that, that a lot of the physical descendants of Abraham did not believe. It was Isaac who believed, not Ishmael. It was Jacob who believed, not Esau. The, the, the physical lineage didn't mean anything. It was the spiritual lineage. It was believing in the seed. It was being an example of faith like Abraham and believing the promise of God. That is what makes one an heir with Abraham. 
and with Christ. Paul will remind the Corinthian believers, most of whom uh, no doubt were Gentiles, that human descent means nothing so far as a person's standing before God is concerned. He said, "Since So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. On the other hand, Paul told the unbelieving Jewish leaders that even though they were physically the descendants of Abraham, their father was the devil. That, that they were the children of the devil. Why is that important? What does it matter today? Why, why, how does this apply to us in any way? You ever known anyone who thought that they were a child of God because they grew up in the church? I've seen plenty of them. A lot of them. Who because they were brought to church their whole lives, they were Christians. That, you know, well, I was born in the church. I grew up in the church. I've told you before. I heard about some kittens that was born in the breadbasket. That didn't make them biscuits. You know, you, you can grow up in the church and be lost. You must believe on Jesus Christ. It is not your physical descent. Now, there is no question that having Christian parents is a great advantage in this world. A tremendous advantage. To be taught the scriptures from a child, that gives you a leg up. And I'm thankful for Christian parents. But you must believe. Justification does not come through physical descent, but rather spiritually. Justification has never been through the law, just as it has never been through circumcision. Later in this letter, Paul will say that God's law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But listen, the law was never given as a means of salvation. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law, that is, as many who seek to be justified on the basis of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The person who is trusting in the law in order to be justified is cursed, Paul says, because it is impossible to keep the law perfectly. James makes it clear that if you break the law at one point, you've broken it all. You know, we, we like to, but men instinctively, again, men pride themselves on the fact that, you know, I never robbed a bank. I, I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never done any of those sins. You ever tell a lie? I mean, even a little white one, or whatever color it is. If you've ever told a lie, then you've committed murder, adultery, stealing. You have been covetous. If you've broken the law at one point, you've broken it all. Because in order to be justified by the law, you have to keep it all. 
If you break any of it, then you are guilty of all of it. Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it's, and it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. Never committed adultery. You ever had lust in your heart? Boom, there you go. Broke that one. That's number seven. You ever been angry with someone? Oh, there's number six. They're all falling here. The purpose of the law was to reveal God's perfect standards of righteousness and to show men that they were unable to live up to the standard. The purpose of the law is to drive you to the cross. The purpose of the law, we might say, is to make you miserable in your sins and turn you to the cross. For in the work of Jesus Christ and alone there is salvation, no other. Awareness of our inability to keep the law should drive us to faith in God. Paul said the law was given as a tutor, a school teacher. The purpose of the law was to teach us, can't keep it. Can't keep it. But we delude ourselves. We deceive ourselves into believing that the part that we think we are keeping is enough. Because I'm keeping this part. I remember... I remember years and years ago, I, I was uh, preaching a revival down in Pikeville, Tennessee, and uh, there was this one man in the community that every time a visiting preacher came, you go see him. And this man, by every account, was a good man. He helped his neighbors. He was honest. He he didn't harm people. He didn't hurt people. If if there anyone in the community needed help, it was widely acknowledged you could count on this man uh, to help. If, if there was a widow who needed groceries, he'd buy them. If there was someone who needed help with their automobile, he'd fix it. He was just a fine example of honesty and courage and integrity. And I remember standing in his driveway talking to him about salvation and and with tears in his eyes after I had presented the gospel that I'm sure he knew better than I did you know he'd heard it more times with tears in his eyes he said to me well preacher don't you think that God makes a provision for people who just do the best they can and I said yes he has made provision for those who think that they can enter his heaven by doing the best they can. It is an eternal hell. Because human goodness as a substitute for the new birth is the worst form of evil. It is saying that I don't need the death of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that Jesus Christ came and kept God's law perfectly and then died in agony and blood naked on a cross separated from God. I can do it myself, thank you very much. I'll just do the best I can and that'll be it. That's spitting in the face of God. Rather than believing God. 
Abraham's trust was not in what he possessed, but what he was promised. You remember what the writer of the Hebrews says about Abraham? By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for a city, and it's a real city, because it has foundations. And the builder and maker of that city is God. Abraham's faith was exemplified by his willingness to go to a land that he had never seen, to a promise that he would never possess. Abraham journeyed to that land and was satisfied to live there as an alien, a stranger, an illegal immigrant, if you will, because his ultimate hope was in the inheritance of that city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There's, a, there's an old gospel song that... <clears throat> We used to sing, I'm, many of you know it, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. How true that is. This world is not our home. There's a new world that's coming. There's a new heaven and a new earth wherein will dwell righteousness. But this present earth is not. Paul goes on in Romans 4, in verse 14. For if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs... Faith is null, null, and the promise is void. If men were able to keep God's law perfectly, then, of course, they would be heirs of God. That, of course, is impossible. But if it were true, it would make faith void and it would nullify the promise of God. Faith is able to receive anything that God promises. If, on the other hand, God's promises are only to be received by obedience to the law, which neither Abraham nor anyone else has ever kept except for Jesus Christ, then faith is canceled. In other words, to predicate a promise on an impossible condition is to nullify the promise. The promise was not by the keeping of the law. The promise and the standard was grace. Through faith. The law cannot save because the law brings about wrath. The more a person seeks to justify himself by keeping God's law, the more he proves his inability to do so because of his sinfulness. And he brings wrath upon himself. Just as surely as the law reveals God's righteousness, it also expresses man's sinfulness. What Paul's going to talk about in Romans 7. He said, I, I, didn't, I didn't know I was covetous until I read, You shall not covet. And the law brought about condemnation. The law made me see what a terrible sinner that I am. The crux of this passage, of course, is verse 16. God 
reckons the believer's faith as righteousness in order that salvation might be in accordance with grace. Were it not for God's sovereign grace providing a way of salvation, even a person's faith would have no value. That is why faith is not just some other form of human works, as some theologians have argued down through the centuries of the church. The power of salvation, our justification, is in God's grace, not in man's faith. Faith is a gift of God. Faith comes because of grace. Abraham's faith was not in itself righteousness but was reckoned to him as righteousness on the basis of the one who would graciously provide for all believers. And that one is Jesus Christ, that one descendant. Jesus Christ has obtained salvation for all who believe. Grace is the divine power that brings justification in order that the promise might be certain to all descendants. Again, Paul is speaking here of spiritual descendants, not physical. That's made clear when he says, not only in the adherent of the law, the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. When God called Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldees, he was a pagan idolater. Before God's covenant, technically I guess you could say there were no Jews and Gentiles. It was God's calling of Abram and bringing him out of Ur that made the distinction of a Jew. But Paul's point here is that God reckoned Abraham's faith as righteousness before any such distinctions were made. Romans 4 is important because it says that God justifies who? The people who go to church, people who go to Hindu festivals, people who are woke, people who are not racist. Well, no, no, wait a second. That's not what it says. It says that God justifies the ungodly, like ungodly Abraham, like ungodly Bob ungodly Rick and ungodly Lynn. God justifies the ungodly. His grace brings us into the family of God to be heirs of Abraham. Abraham was the spiritual prototype of every genuine believer. He was a pagan, idolatrous, ungodly sinner who trusted not in his own effort to be right with God, but trusted in the promise of God. So Paul says, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. The promise to Abraham was fulfilled in the presence of him who believed, even God. So Paul gives two qualifications. This God that he is talking about is the one who gives life to the dead. Abraham had experienced that firsthand. He was past the age of, of to have a child. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And Isaac is born. A miracle baby. 
His body, we're told, was as good as dead, so far as having children was concerned. But God gives life to the dead. And secondly, this God is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. I've always wanted to ask some of the theistic evolutionists exactly what they do with verses like this. Because, you know, you want to deal with Genesis and say, well, no, that doesn't mean what it says. But Paul says that God is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. And that's obviously, I think, a reference to God's creative power. That God said, let there be light, and there was light. That God created the universe out of nothing. How? <laughs> well, because he's God. He can call into existence things that do not exist. Only God can do that. He is the one true God who calls people and places and events into existence solely by his divine, sovereign determination. It is God who graciously calls us into his family. By his grace. And faith is simply the channel that brings us there. I've told you this several times before, but it's important to remember. There are only two kinds of religion in the world. Works and grace there's only one that's grace and that's Christianity all the rest of them are works all the rest of them you do something to get to God Christianity says that it's a matter of coming to God by grace through faith for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast only two kinds of religion. All the religions in the world, I don't know how many there are, there are hundreds of them, but they can all be divided into those two categories, works and grace. And only this gospel is by grace. This gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that he has kept that law of God, which you cannot and believe that he died for your sins. That he took the wrath of God that you deserved. Believe. And God will impute his perfect righteousness to your account. Just as he did for Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him as righteousness. Believe God. And God will impute the righteousness of Christ to you. And impute all of your sins to Christ. Salvation comes by grace through faith. It is not by ritual. It is not by ceremony. It is not by keeping the law. Let's pray. Our Father and our God.